patiently waiting from Exodus chapter 32 verses 1 to 14 will be our main text this morning. As we enter another, another year in our calendar, I would like to share with you about the important subject of patience which appears right throughout the scriptures. Yes, there will be, we will have to wait sometimes in traffic, the usual waiting in the shopping aisles and uh, I'm, I'm very good at shopping and waiting in the aisles. So I, as soon as another counter opens, I go there and then that one gets long and then I miss out on the one that I was, was before. So, yeah, it's the usual stuff, right? Um, and then, of course, we've been going on with the, this whole pandemic now for since March, February, March last year and, and we just... We're just waiting for things to get back to normal. As soon as things are starting to get back to normal, down we go again. As Christians, Christians who recognise that Jesus is the promised Messiah, we, we no longer, we give thanks to God for this, we no longer have to wait for his first coming. He has come already. But we are certainly waiting for his second coming. And the events that are currently unfolding before our eyes, I think only serves to heighten our longing for this glorious event to happen, to come, to occur sooner rather than later. Come Lord Jesus. So this morning I want to share with you about about what we should do and, and shouldn't be doing while we wait. Our passage is, of course, a well-known story. And uh, the, our first heading this morning is Uncertain Times. Now, after many trials and plagues and tribulations, the Israelites, the people of God, finally leave Egypt and are on their way to the Promised Land. They have already crossed the Red Sea. The mediator between God and his people is, of course, the great man Moses, the great leader who really has his work cut out for him. But now Moses has gone walkabout. He hasn't been around for some 40 days. He hasn't just gone anywhere. He has gone to be in the one place in the whole universe where you really want to be, next to God, in communion with him for 40 days. But the people are getting restless because not only did he go, he didn't take any food with him. He can't surely in this arid place on Mount Sinai, how can he possibly survive? They're probably thinking, right? For those of you who go camping, you know that one of the most essential things you always take is, is food and lodging and you prepare yourself, and that's just for a day or two, right? Imagine going for 40 days. Can you imagine what, how the caravan's going to be packed for that? Verse 1 says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down the mountain. So, week 1, week 2, week 3, 4, a whole month, it's gone. Now, 
You've got to put yourself in their place. These people had been slaves, so they were used to working from dawn to dusk. They had no me time, no time to be idle and say, oh, I'm bored, I don't know what to do. Because the slave masters will come around with their whip and get you working pretty, pretty quick, wouldn't they? Suddenly they find themselves with a lot of time on their hands and they didn't know what they were supposed to do. So they started to wonder whether Moses was coming back at all. It is hard to wait, isn't it? Especially with, uh, without a view of their goal and what it looked like or, or an idea of the time it was going to take to get from here to there. And by this time, by this stage, of course, the thunder on the mountain had ceased. There was silence. And it appeared that Moses was gone and so was God. So you can understand that because I think we've been there, right? So these enterprising people called for Moses' brother Aaron to do something. He was the deputy leader while Moses was away and they wanted a, a project that would capture their hearts and occupy their idle hands. And for the people of Israel, it, it, it seems that it was easier to do something, anything, rather than wait around doing nothing. They wanted something to which they can devote themselves in the midst of the uncertainty in which they found themselves. So, what were they going to do? Oh, you guys, any ideas? Oh, let's play some beach volleyball. A lot of sand. Uh, what else? Camel races. Any camels about? Let's, you know. How about making sandcastles? I get it. I know, I know. Guys, guys, your kids are driving you crazy. You know, what are you going to do during the school holidays? How are we going to entertain these kids, right? Is that what they were thinking? Is that what some of the ideas that we're running around? No, this is what they said. Verse 1. They gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. And listen to this. As for this fellow... As for this fellow Moses, notice the derogatory way in which they refer, as for this fellow, he just brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery, did all these amazing miracles through God's power. As for this fellow, who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. How quickly, how quickly. Leadership is so fickle, guys, I'm telling you. I'm telling you, it, it is so fickle. People can turn on you like that. How do I know that? Don't get me started. Now, it's sad that Aaron, instead of talking them out of this preposterous idea, he sort of joins in the fun. He just goes along with it when he should have known better. So everybody chipped in a little bit. Don't, don't forget that the, 
that the Egyptians on their way out of Egypt, the Egyptians gave him plenty of gifts, gold. So they took up a collection and Aaron made the image. Now they didn't have to wait anymore. It didn't take all that long and now they had an image of a god. They said the right words in a little ceremony of dedication. These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And then they had a party to celebrate. It's sad, isn't it? God managed, God, Yahweh, he managed to free them from physical slavery in Egypt but their hearts were still enslaved to the foreign gods. And this is something that the nation of Israel will have to struggle with for the next 800 years, this worshipping God, idols, God. You know, they never really left God, but they didn't really want to leave the idols either. They wanted to do it all together. It's called syncretism. Yes, we will worship God, but we will have to... Please don't ask me to let go of these things. Let's bring it all. Bring it all together. Well, they thought. Our second heading, waiting on God to act. A good question to ask when you are waiting for God to act is, what are you waiting for? Uh, are you waiting for on his salvation or are you waiting on his judgment? Usually we wait for his salvation on us and his judgment on everybody else. We definitely don't want, we're not waiting for his judgment on us. But when it comes to judgment, please God, you know, those terrible people, just do away with them, please, sooner rather than later. Thank you. Now consider this. The Israelites were, they were slaves for 400 years before God delivered them. And now, in their freedom, they could not wait 40 days. 400 years, 40 days. Now, I am sure, I am sure that in the midst of all those people, that there were some godly people there. I'm sure. God-fearing Israelites. But they were not able to stand against the tide, this avalanche of sin that was suddenly overwhelming them. You look at the things that are happening around us and it feels like as Christians we are overwhelmed by this change of laws, this whole situation that is happening in our society and it's saying, wow, We feel powerless. And if God does judge, we're going to get caught up in it. I mean, I'm sorry, but that's the way way it's going to be. Unless, of course, God, in his mercy, raptures his church before that happens. But many of our brothers and sisters... They're suffering right now, whether it's in countries in persecution in in, in Asia or in in Africa, in the Middle East. Don't you think they've been praying and waiting for God's deliverance and still, still they're there. 
What makes you think that we in Australia are so special? So are you waiting for his salvation or his judgment? Maybe both. In verses 7 to 8, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, go down from the mountain where they were communing. And then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been, and this is what God says, they have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. So Moses had no idea until God reminds him and tells him what was going on. No sooner were they delivered, of course, these people, these Israelites, they quickly turned away and started making their own gods. We, of course, live in a time when people have replaced God with the gods of wealth, materialism and uh, the gods of science. I won't trust anything except science. And the gods of political and social issues and social causes. We can fix the climate, we can fix the planet, we can fix the genders and so on and so forth, they tell us. Suddenly, even for believers that get overtaken by this avalanche, even seeking God's kingdom first and his righteousness seems to be the last carriage on the, on the train, isn't it? When it should be the first. Seek God's kingdom first. And this is why we desperately need God's salvation. And God sometimes sends his servants... Like here he told Moses, go down, go down there and tell them, go down there. Then ultimately, and there's a parable about this of course, ultimately he will send his own son Jesus Christ. In Matthew one twenty one, because he would save his people from their sins. He would save his people from their sins. No, he's not going to liberate them from the Romans. He's not going to free them physically from the occupying forces. He would save them from their sins. Psalm 40 recalls a time when David also had to wait, Psalm 40. And, and, he, and David waited for God to save and God acted in a wonderful way. In Psalm 40 verses 1 to 3, I waited patiently for the Lord He turned and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. That's beautiful words right there. Very well-known psalm. So as David looked at his experience, we don't know exactly what it was, whether it was an ailment, whether it was, you know, the, the time that uh, his own kingdom was falling apart. He, he did it with, with a new song in his heart. He could see that God's deliverance came. He, didn't, he knew that the waiting was worth it. 
He was raised from an insecure, unsure place, not knowing what was going to happen, to a place where he could be restored and rebuild his life again. That's the way that God does things. Of course, we know we're, we're used to having things on a program that, you know, we have these flow charts and work plans that uh, we, when you're in construction, by week one, this is what's going to happen, the footings are going to gain. Week two, the concrete's going to get poured. Week three, and so on and so forth. These are the schedules, right? And in two years, you have this high rise. It's going to happen. It's the work of our hands, the work of our planning. And we're used to that. And we put our plans before God and God, this is our plan, right? God, in year one, this is what's going to happen. Year two, this is... And God just says, you're kidding me, right? You know, it might only take two years to put up a, a high-rise building, but God takes a century to grow a beautiful, sturdy oak tree. A hundred years. So too, the Lord may seem to be working slowly to accomplish his purposes in his church, in our lives, but his grand design takes time. It takes time. And in the midst of persecution, in the first century, Christians, of course, they, um, they, they were pleading, they were crying, they were anticipating Christ's immediate return. Maranatha, that's the word. Come, Lord Jesus. But he didn't come. And, and, and some, you can understand it, some struggled to maintain their witness with hostile, horrible persecution. Never, never certain of the outcome from their own lives and their families. But even so, even so, such waiting was not passive or inert or, or powerless behaviour. It's not like I said, well, we can't do anything We'll just keep quiet. No. They met secretly, underground, in homes, and they changed locations, just like much of the underground churches had to do in many parts of the world. Because the gospel was never going to be imprisoned. The gospel was never going to submit to the laws of the land and and incarcerated, the gospel is free. It continues. It's like a fire. You cannot stop it. In the New Testament, patience is not a vacuum. It works. It endures. Paul's letters Paul's letters were written while in prison. He wasn't just doing nothing. When God wanted Paul to write a letter that we have today, he put him in prison. Thank you, Lord. And and Revelation, the book of Revelation speaks of the patience of the saints as, as endurance of the saints. Patience sounds a little bit... It's a little bit passive, doesn't it? Patience, passive. But endurance, 
is, is, you know, suddenly your long distance is in, is, is in mind here. That, and, and therefore in Revelation 14 verse 12, this is what it says, this calls, after, after giving us a list of what is going to happen and could very well be applied to the times in which we live today. So what are we to do? This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Patient endurance together. So there is a deeper meaning than just putting up with hardship and facing persecution. The people of God possess this living, outgoing power of faith. It's an active power, not this defenceless resignation. Oh well, that's just the way things are. A person of patience is able to see in present adversity the light of greater glory and trust in the ultimate goodness and purpose of God gives us this calmness, this assurance to trust in his sovereignty, even when we cannot understand why it's happening. Thirdly, patience with one another. Patience with one another. Now in his sovereign time, God saved his own people and led them on the way to the promised land. And yes, how quickly they proved unworthy of his saving act. And let's remember, let's recall that at this time he hadn't given them too many rules up to this point. The, the, the Ten Commandments, because this is why Moses was with God for 40 days, the commandments, right? And, and they had not yet been delivered. So, perhaps we can say, well, maybe the Israelites didn't know about these rules about images and other gods. I've read some of this stuff. And they say, well, it's a little bit unfair for God to be too upset because he hadn't really told them. Except, they saw the many miracles he performed. They witnessed the glorious deliverance through the Red Sea. They're giving them bread and water, manna. No sooner they unpack their bags on the other side of the sea, they quickly start whinging and complaining and, and then they start attributing their deliverance to other gods. These are the gods that brought you out. And do you think a jealous God is going to put up with that? I brought you out. And these are the gods that brought you out? Come on, guys, you can't have them both. Who ultimately brought you out of the land of Egypt? You can understand that. You can understand that on God's part, right? You make this beautiful, let's just say, you restore a vehicle. Hard work. It took you two or three years, right? You get this crap a rubbish heap, and then you restore it. Right? Day after day, you spend blood, sweat and tears into this beautiful 
let's say, a Ford, if you're a Ford man, let's say an XY, to, you know, mint condition. It's your work. It's got your name on it everywhere. And suddenly somebody comes along, right? I said, I'll give you, I'll give you, I don't know, $50,000 for this car that you put all your work on it. And he gives you the money. And then he goes and brags to his mates and says, look, I did all this with my own hands. Huh? Isn't it a bit unfair? Well, it, it isn't. You, you paid the money, but you didn't do the work. Somebody else did the work. Somebody else put the sacrifice. And, and, and in the same way, these people, you know, they did the work making the idol, I suppose. You could say, yeah, that's the work of your hands. But ultimately, that was nothing compared to the, to the deliverance of God from the, the land of slavery. It was God who did it, not these gods. Look at it. Think about it. It was not the work of your hands that saved you. And God was not going to put up with that. And you don't even need the Ten Commandments to tell you that that is wrong. The Ten Commandments were coming, by the way. But even that should tell you, even that should tell you that it is God who has delivered you. So in his jealous anger, he's ready to write them off, wipe them out. And God told Moses that as a result of what was happening, he was going to destroy his people and start over again with Moses and his descendants. It seemed like that God had had enough. And, and, and God says to Moses, I'm going to start with you, mate. Now, many Christian leaders I know would probably would jump at the chance. Great! Yes, the tribe of the Mozachooks. All over again, right? Yeah! Ah, but Moses is not Paul Mozachook here. It just shows you the measure of the man who, when it says, but Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. He was, Moses wasn't after a great name. He wasn't after fame or glory or anything like this. The stuff that, you know, this generation worships so much. Oh, what a great leader. Oh, we're going to follow him. Oh, you're going to, there's no one like him. Moses wasn't interested in any of that. Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. Yes, these stiff-necked people tested the patience of the Lord and also tested Moses' patience. And despite this, Moses intercedes for his people and the Lord relents. Now, I've got to tell you, our patience will definitely be tested and tried in the context, in what context? In the context of human relationships. Just like us, just like us, people can be frustrating, selfish, hard to be patient with them. Our kids will test us. And this is why I love these short and succinct words from the Apostle Paul. 
Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. Show a gentle attitude towards everyone. Everyone. The Lord is coming soon. Now, we can take these words in two ways. It could be, uh, you won't have to put up with, with this situation. You won't have to put up with these people for too much longer. Or, it could also mean, make sure you do the right thing because you will have to give account before God sooner than you think. Do you know that if we, uh, we cry out for Christ to come, are you ready? Are you ready to give account for your life before him? How you lived? What you've done? In his judgment seat? No, I'm not talking about the judgment of non-believers. I'm talking about the judgment of believers. The Bible talks about that as well. Based on the works, based on how your faithfulness We will have to give an account before God. And Christians have to display a quality of life that makes it easier to get along with rather than more difficult with one another. And I don't care what age you are. I don't care if you're a five-year-old or a 50-year-old or a 90-year-old. There's no excuse for having a stupid behaviour. Yes, I know. I know. I understand the things that frustrate us. As Christians, we are called to bear with the failings of the weak, the Bible says. To bear with the failings of the weak. This takes forbearance, thoughtful consideration. And, 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 and the Bible gives us... There are so many verses about this, Right? And a great list is, of course, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. And how are you to interpret the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is, is the way that God is working in your life. So bearing fruit is, it's, it's like as you get older in the Christian life, in the Christian walk, uh, this year is you're going to bear more fruit than last year. So you're supposed to be progressing in the Christian life. That's the way it's supposed to be working. Look at this checklist and see how you're doing. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, <laughs> forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and I love this one, self-control. This, you put it all in a, in a mincer and churn it out, right? It's the list right there. So how are we doing with these? How are we doing? Because without them, we will never get along and we will miss out on our calling before God. This is the way that God wants us to live. And, and don't use that excuse. That's just the way I am. Okay? It's a cop out. If that's the way you are, then might as well just forget about the scriptures, forget about the Christian life. The whole idea of Christ living in you is that you are, he, you are being remade into his image. 
being ready for eternity. That starts now. Fourthly, God is our ultimate example. Now, all that Moses could do is plead for even more patience on the one who had already done so much to bring the people this far. So Moses begs for God to remember his covenant, verse 13. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. The words that Moses speak only make sense while he's interceding for his people, only make sense if, if, if you consider the promises that God made on the past, in the past, but the past has, is, is going to have an impact in the present and it will also have an impact in the future based on God's promises. Of course, the, the greatest patience has been revealed by God as he pursued you and me. How many years has he been patient with you and me? And God understands patience. He has his fair share of it. And he took them hundreds of years to bring them this far and he will take a few more hundred to deliver them. Time has never been a problem for God. It has never been a problem. And Moses' intercession, of course, sounds very similar to Jesus pleading for those who put him on the cross when he said, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Moses was interceding for the people but even Moses' act was foreshadowing the ultimate intercession of Jesus on the cross. And that intercession continues even now, Hebrews tells us. And God hears the pleas of his own of his own son on behalf of those he loves. Yes, God's patience will not last forever for those who are lost. It will not last, but he continues to wait and the Bible tells us why. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, if you think it's difficult for mortals like us who cannot see the future to wait patiently because we don't, we, we don't know what's going to happen next day, we don't know what's going to happen in the next hour and, and we can't see the future. If you think it's hard for us to wait, Think about the patience needed by our Father who does see everything. In his foreknowledge, sees all too well the weaknesses, the fallenness, the stubborn unwillingness of those who refuse to listen to him. He knows the outcome. And those who continually and deliberately 
rejecting. But waiting is what he does until his appointed time. That is why Peter doesn't finish there, but then he goes on to say in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like like a thief. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. When his patience is finished, the doors of the ark will close and everything's going to happen. Bang, bang, bang. One thing after the other. So if if you've been thinking about the Christian faith, if you've been thinking about, you know, getting getting serious about obedience to God and his commands, don't, don't, don't put it off. Don't, don't continually, oh, I've got time. Don't. And one of the things that God calls us to do in, in his word is baptism, for example. That's, it's a very big one for the Christian. He calls us to be baptised. That's part of the Great Commission. So we're giving you an opportunity. If, if, if you've never been baptised, you want to follow in obedience to God through the waters of baptism, there is a chance, there is an opportunity. If you've never given your life to Christ, why, what are you waiting for? You're still thinking about it? How long is it going to take? Stop wandering, stop meandering through this world like there's nothing, there's no meaning. God has given you everything already that you need to put your trust in him. He won't do any more than what he's already done. His greatest gift was Jesus on the cross. As good as he gets. In his promises is, his, is our hope. In God's timing is the perfect fulfilment of all that he has promised. Can we do anything less than give godly patience its deserved and rightful place in the ordering of our lives? Yes, waiting can be a time for reflection on all that is good and honourable and pure and the gracious things he has done for us in the past. Humbly give thanks to God for his grace, for his abundant provisions. But there's also, as as we are thankful for God for the past, there has to be a growing eager expectation of his act and he will act in salvation or in judgment. Both. It's going to happen. And he will do so in according to his good and perfect will. While we wait, we do as he says and not allow our hearts to wander astray, making and following and shaping little gods after our own hearts. But we want to follow the true God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, not distracted but growing closer to him as we know that he does all things good, all things well in his time. May God bless us. Amen.